going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Teeth. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Oh, man. Today's case is going to be a doozy. It's going to be a long one. This case has sat, I think, with all of us ever since we all watched Making a Murderer about seven years ago. But there is a lot more to the story, and more has come out since the series aired. So we're here to finally cover the case. Though, of course, if you haven't seen it, do so. Making a Murderer on Netflix. There are so many extended details in that show that we couldn't get to. You know, some things that we had to summarize in order to fit other details that were not in the show, but um, we tried to pack as much in as possible, and this is definitely going to be the longest Going West episode ever. Yes, so many details. (laughs) I'm a little scared. Yeah, so let's not waste any more time. Let's just get into this one. All right, guys, this is episode 248 of Going West, so let's get into it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. On Halloween day in 2005, a 25-year-old photographer headed to a Wisconsin salvage yard and was never seen again. When her car was found a few days later on the same property, a man was arrested for her murder. But did he do it? With theories of the man being framed and other persons of interest sneaking into the story, Many are left wondering if police have the right man behind bars. This is the story of Teresa Halbach. Teresa Marie Halbach was born on March 22, 1980 in Kakana, Wisconsin. She was the third child of parents Karen and Richard, joining older brothers Timothy and Mike. But when Teresa was just eight years old, the family lost their patriarch, Teresa's father Richard, very suddenly and actually while on vacation in Florida. Now, there's nothing in his obituary or in news articles about his cause of death, but one Reddit thread devoted to information about Teresa's family claims that it was an unexpected heart attack. And Richard was just 31 years old at the time, so very, very young. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah. I'm 34. That scares me. Yeah, so, so sad. So Teresa's mom, Karen, did remarry, and Teresa gained a stepfather named Thomas, as well as two little sisters, Katie and Kelly. Teresa spent her childhood on a dairy farm in the small town of Hilbert, which is about a 40-minute drive southwest of Green Bay, Wisconsin. The whole family was very close, but Teresa was remembered as especially close with her younger sisters. Her family described her as confident, always the life of the party, and she could make absolutely anybody smile. 
She was athletic, playing competitive basketball in middle school and running cross-country track, but also very artsy and participated in multiple school musicals. Even as an adult, her love of the stage continued as she frequently went out to sing karaoke, and she's remembered as having a great singing voice. And I wonder what her karaoke song was. In case anybody's wondering, Heath is Bohemian Rhapsody, and he kills it every time. I do. I do crush that song. It's always great. So, Teresa graduated from Hilbert High School in 1998 and went on to attend the University of Wisconsin in nearby Green Bay. Indulging her artistic side, she decided to pursue photography and also worked for the school's newspaper. I said photography. Um, photography. (laughs) (laughs) Teresa then graduated summa cum laude with a degree in photography in 2002. When she was just 21 years old and still in school, she started working for a uh, professional photography studio called Pierce Photography under its owner and namesake Tom Pierce. She also did children's photo shoots for Pierce Photography, uh, which was great for her because she loved kids, and she wanted to be a mom one day. Eventually, Teresa broke out on her own and fulfilled her dream of opening her very own studio, Photography by Teresa, shooting on her Canon PowerShot A310 digital camera. She even rented a space in the same building in which she worked with Tom. And although they ran separate businesses with different clients in their respective studios, They would often work together, share resources, and just kind of help each other out. Tom remembers Teresa being an extremely talented photographer and a dedicated business owner. And outside of photography by Teresa, she also took photos for the used car digest auto trader. In her spare time, Teresa coached her sister's seventh grade volleyball team. She also loved to travel and, according to her obituary, had enjoyed visits to Spain, New Zealand, Australia, Mexico, and all over the United States. And she was looking forward to crossing more places off her bucket list. She loved exploring the outdoors and had learned to scuba dive while in Australia. She also liked to camp and made frequent trips to Lake Winnebago, just south of Kakana, where she was born. At one time, she had a serious boyfriend who we're going to talk about quite a bit in this episode. Maybe not quite a bit, but here and there. Um, He was a fellow Hilbert High alumni named Ryan Hilligus. They dated for about five years, but had gone their separate ways in 2001. And Teresa seemed to be focusing on her work. For reference, remember, 2001, that's while she was still in college and four years before she went missing. But more than anything, Teresa cherished the time she spent with her family and friends. At the time of her disappearance, she had just moved back to Hilbert to be closer to her family and especially her little sisters. Her rent in Green Bay had recently gone up and her mom convinced her to move home to save a little money. The family had a large piece of property where their farm sat, and aside from the main house where her parents and her sisters resided, there was a spare farmhouse that Teresa could have all to herself. And she actually split this place with a roommate named Scott Blodorn, making the rent that she paid to her family even cheaper. They had been living together for about eight months when Teresa went missing, and by all accounts, they were great roommates. Scott, who was also a good friend of Teresa's ex-boyfriend, Ryan, claimed that there was nothing romantic or physical between the two of them and that he and Teresa were just good friends, nothing more. But some speculate that there was some romantic history there, though this has never been confirmed. And Scott recalled being close with her family as well. So he was, you know, he was, he was very much in her life. He was in the mix. 
So the Hallbuck siblings would often come by to have Sunday night dinners all together, and Teresa frequently headed over to the main farmhouse to visit with her family and watch TV with her sisters. In a video diary three years prior to her death, Teresa made an oddly prophetic statement about her life in retrospect. She said, quote, Let's say I died tomorrow. I don't think I will. I think I have a lot more to do. I just want people I love to know that when I die, that I was happy. That I'm happy with what I did in my life. I love knowing that I like who I am. I love taking pictures. I love holding a camera in my hand. I love kids. I love babies. I don't hate anyone. I love a lot of people. I feel loved. So obviously things mostly seem to be going well for Teresa. But in the weeks leading up to Teresa's disappearance, particularly between October 1st and 7th, her former boss and current friend and collaborator Tom Pierce remembered her receiving some suspicious phone calls. She had apparently looked at her phone one day and said, quote, Oh, not him again, but told Tom that it was nothing to worry about. On the evening of Sunday, October 30th, 2005, the family gathered at the farm to celebrate Teresa's grandfather's birthday. She spent the evening watching TV with her sisters and left around 10 p.m. But that weekend, she attended a Halloween party in Green Bay and was planning on dressing up as a cowgirl for a party that she was attending on Halloween night. But on the afternoon of the following day, so Halloween, the day where she's later supposed to dress as that cowgirl of 2005, Teresa was due at a local salvage yard to photograph a used car for Auto Trader. She was heading to Avery's Auto Salvage, a salvage yard and tow company that also sells car parts and used vehicles, located in Two Rivers, Wisconsin. This is about 40 minutes east of where Teresa lived. Avery's Auto Salvage, or Avery's Salvage Yard, had been owned and operated by the Avery family, Dolores and Alan Avery, and their children, Barb, Stephen, Chuck, and Earl, for years. The property, located at 12930 Avery Road in Two Rivers, hosts four residents for the family, including Chuck Avery, Stephen Avery, Barb, and their parents, Alan and Dolores, as well as multiple other structures. Teresa had taken photos of cars for them on five other occasions that year. June 20th, August 22nd, August 29th, September 19th, and most recently, October 10th. So she was pretty familiar with the property and the people that live there. Yeah, she had been out there many, many times. One auto trader employee who worked with Teresa remembered her saying that Stephen Avery, the owner's son who lived on the salvage yard in a red trailer, had once answered the door in a towel, which Teresa found creepy. At 11.43 a.m. on Monday, October 31st, Teresa called and left a voicemail announcing when she would arrive to take the pictures. She said in this voicemail, quote, Hello, this is Teresa with Auto Trader Magazine. I'm a photographer and I'm just giving you a call to let you know that I could come out there today um, in the afternoon. It would will, will probably be around two o'clock or even a little later, but um, if you could please give me a call back and let me know if that will work for you because I don't have your address or anything, so I can't stop by without getting the or a call back from you. Again, it's Teresa, thank you. So it's interesting that she said this because she had been there multiple times. So maybe yeah. she just didn't know how to get there by heart because it's not like she went there multiple days in a row all the time. Like she was there sporadically. Sure. But um, or I will say this as well is that 
um, as I'm about to mention, actually, um, the name is under Barb Janda. So maybe she didn't realize at the time that it was at Avery Salvage. So she left her phone number um, in the call as well or in the voicemail as well, and she hung up. So that afternoon, she drove her Toyota RAV4 to Avery's Auto Salvage to meet Barb Janda, who is Stephen Avery's sister, whose name the appointment was listed under, and she was never seen again after this. Now, we're going to be talking about Stephen Avery a lot in this episode, so while we mentioned this note that Barb made the appointment, it was actually Stephen who made it, but under his sister Barb's name. That's very interesting. I don't know why. I mean, if they all kind of co-own this company... I don't know why he would make it under Barb's name. Well, many people believe that maybe he was trying to like lure Teresa to the house this way, especially since Steven specifically requested, quote, that same girl who was here last time, a.k.a. Teresa. Yeah. Um, And he wanted her specifically to photograph the car, while others point out that since the car was actually Barb's car, that is the reason that he likely used Barb's name for the appointment, but this is really up for the or up for debate, so yeah. it's it's really unclear. And by the way, Barb uh, did not arrive home until about five p.m. that evening, so she wasn't even there when Teresa photographed the vehicle. So, because Teresa didn't stop in to see her family every day, they didn't really think much of it when they didn't see her the following day or the day after that. But on November third, two thousand five. After confirming that her roommate Scott had also not seen her in a few days, her concerned family reported her missing. Scott said it was unlike Teresa to go home with someone that she had just met, even if she had just met someone that she was interested in at the party that she said she was going to on the evening of Halloween. So the small community quickly rallied together to help one of their own. Teresa's ex-boyfriend Ryan Hilligas said, quote, People want to do nothing but help. Ryan himself was central to the search efforts, organizing grassroots searches led by friends, family, and community members. He was out aiding the police in spearheading search parties for days straight following her missing persons report, scarcely taking a break to sleep or eat, and even staying at Teresa's home so that he could use that as his home base. There were multiple searches going on for Teresa between her family and friends, volunteers, and the local police. Of course, considering the last known place Teresa had been was Avery Salvage, Sergeant Andrew Colborn headed over there and questioned Stephen Avery about the appointment that Avery Salvage had with her the day she went missing, so a few days earlier. Stephen said that he didn't know where she was and that she had only been over to take photos of Barb's car for a few minutes and then left which makes sense considering we know it's a very quick job. Yeah, all you got to do is take a photo and then you're that you're done. Right, or just, you know, a few to put in the magazine, that's it. Super quick job. But still, they wanted to make sure that she wasn't on their vast property. So the following day on November 4th, 2005, 4 days after Teresa went missing and 1 day after she was reported missing, Lieutenant James Lank and Detective Dave Rymaker from the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department went back to Avery Salvage and asked Stephen if they could search his trailer. And he said that they could. They let him or he let them in and they searched it. But both reported that they did not find Teresa nor anything overtly suspicious. So they left. Then the following day, a couple people, a woman named Pamela and her daughter Nicole from Teresa's family search party, headed to Avery Salvage to ask for permission to search it. Seemingly having nothing to hide, the Averys granted permission and they began their search. 
Now, to explain the property a little bit better, like Daphne said, it's 40 acres, so it's massive, but also holds 3,000 cars, which is something that the searchers were looking for, which could have proven to be a huge task. However, in just 30 minutes, Pamela Sturm, who is the second cousin of Teresa's, called the police when she came upon what she thought was Teresa's vehicle. And now here's the audio clip from that call. Hi, this is Sheriff uh, Pago. Oh, Sheriff Pago, hi. This is Pam Sturm. I'm on the search for Teresa Hallbeck, and we found a RAV4. You did? It's a, it's a bluish green, though. It's more blue than green. We just wanted to know if you got the VIN number for that vehicle. Yes, we do. We do have a VIN number. It is all covered up. It's all covered up? Not all covered, but it's got a lot of stuff on it, branches. It's I don't have got glasses. Okay, branches over it. Yeah. Um, uh, where's the number on something like this? Well, the VIN number would probably be on the windshield or underneath, uh, the, by the, on the dash, driver's side. Yeah, driver's side next. Looks through the front window. Through the front window. Mm hmm I'll give you Investigator Wigert. He's got the phone, or the VIN number here. Okay. Hi. Are you looking at it right now? Yeah, you know, we can't find that VIN number. What color is it? It is bluish green. Does it look like a newer one? Yeah, it's, it's the 99 to 2000. Is there any? It's more of a bluish green, though. That's why we don't want to put, you know. Is there any license the, plates on it? No plates on it, but it's a little covered up. It's weird. It's covered up. Okay. Are, Some of this. Can you get to the front of the car? Yeah, I will. Do not touch the car. Yeah. Stay on the outside of the car. Go over to the front on the driver's side. Yeah, I, the first, last four digits, three, zero, four, four. Okay, hold on, I gotta find it here again. Okay, can you go even more in? I don't know, Nick, can you look at any other numbers? P, zero, Z, five, F, seven, a one or a T. Okay, where are you? Three, zero, is that the number? Where are you? No, you got to tell me if this is the car. Okay, stop. I can't tell you anything. Where are you? I'm at Avery Salvage. Okay, are you on their property? Yes, I am. With their it's permission or not? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. It's much easier to understand the size of the property and where everything is in this case by looking at a map. And we did post a few of those um, on our social media, so if you want to go check those out, please do. But basically, Teresa's car was found up on a road on the Avery property in a line of cars, meaning that it wasn't in the field of cars like almost all of the 3,000 other vehicles were. So it was amongst maybe 30 to 40 cars in a single file line that can be accessed seemingly pretty easily from the main road because it borders the property and the line of cars is on a dirt road on the property that does connect to Avery Road, which connects to Main Street. And that's where Avery Salvage starts at. And I know that sounds super confusing, but basically picture like a big square. In the middle of the square, um, there is a massive, like, display of vehicles, like thousands of cars. Yeah, like we said, 3,000 yes. vehicles. And then above those are all their trailers and houses. But then if you go to the very bottom of the square that we're talking about, there's a line that connects and, that connects and goes up 
to where the road is. It is on the border of the property. So again, it would be helpful probably to look at a map, but it doesn't matter that much. It just matters that it's not like in the middle of all the other cars. It is yeah. on a separate road. And the fact that she found that so easily and decided to look up on that ridge instead of looking amongst the thousands of vehicles is pretty interesting. Well, I mean, I wonder if, because a lot of times in salvage yards like that, they'll have cars that are stacked on top of each other. Um, you know, obviously this is 40 acres, but I'm, I'm assuming maybe they just decided to start at the edges of the property and then maybe work their way in. And that's how they were able to find it so quickly. Possibly. I mean, she, she came through and they did search some other cars in a line before Pamela says that she looked up and she just decided, oh, I'm going to look on that ridge. And she had to walk up to the ridge to, to look at it. And maybe she wanted to get a, a better view of the salvage yard as well. I don't know, but she found it very quickly. And Teresa's car was found four days after she went missing. So many people point out that if Stephen or one of the Averys had been responsible for Teresa's disappearance or murder, they surely would have dismantled or even stripped the vehicle or crushed it with the property's crusher. And instead of just removing her license plates, like knowing that police would come searching the property, like it's kind of surprising that they would just hide it with some branches, which it, which is really suspicious that there was like branches and other stuff covering the car and no other car looked like that. But it seems like a really poor job if you're trying to actually hide a vehicle. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like they maybe were cocky about the situation and like, well, we'll just kind of hide it maybe in plain sight. Like it's, it's in the corner, it's covered by some trees. We took the license plate off. Nobody's going to really, you know, know. It's just a RAV4. Right. Like, I mean, of course, it's possible that they thought removing the place, like you're saying, could be enough. But it does just seem like a big oversight. And then also to cover it up with the branches, like I said, it just seems like a really odd thing to do. Although, no offense intended, many question Stephen's intelligence in general. So it's possible that if he did do this, that he just thought that was enough. But that's why a lot of people are suspicious. Like, surely he would have gone to further lengths if yeah. he did hide it here, but we're going to get more into that later. So either way, with this discovery, police began an extensive eight-day search of Avery Salvage Yard, in which, naturally, the Averys were not allowed to stay there, so they stayed at a cabin. And on Thursday, November 9th, 2005, after nearly a week of searching for Teresa, human remains believed to be that of an adult woman were found on the property in multiple burn piles in different areas of the property. Investigators collected what they described as charred bones and teeth for DNA testing, and while they waited for results, they continued to conduct a thorough search of the area. What they found was damning. Teresa's car battery, which was detached from the car, and Stephen's non-blood DNA, i.e. sweat or saliva, etc., was found on the hood latch of her vehicle. A, quote, significant amount of Teresa's blood was found in her vehicle as well, in the rear cargo area and near the ignition, and her car keys were found in Stephen Avery's bedroom. Also found in his bedroom were leg cuffs, handcuffs, and a gun. And by the way, gun possession is illegal for felons, which he is, as we will explain. Her cell phone and her license plates to her car were also recovered on the property. And in the bathroom in front of the washer and dryer, more of her blood was reportedly found. 
But before we dig into the investigation, let's talk a little bit more about Stephen Avery's criminal and present history to kind of, you know, paint the scene a little better. So between 1979 and 1980, he had a few traffic charges, including reckless driving. In November of 1980, he broke into a bar and stole two cases of beer, two sandwiches, a toolbox, and $14 in quarters. He was convicted of two felony burglary charges and served 10 months in jail. On September 2nd, 1982, while at a bonfire with some friends, um, this involves animal cruelty, so please skip uh, five to 10 seconds if you don't wanna hear this brief situation involving a cat. So um, if you have skipped, sorry, I wanna give a second. So um, Stephen, very sadly, this is so disgusting. He poured gasoline on a cat and threw it into a fire and he and his friends watched the cat die. So absolutely disgusting. And he was luckily charged with cruelty to animals and he served nine months in jail. His response to these charges were, quote, I was young and stupid and hanging out with the wrong people. Obviously, that that does not mean that you can abuse and murder animals. So in January of 1985, he was involved in a road rage incident in which he ran his female cousin off the road before getting out of the car and pulling a gun on her. And he only backed down when he saw that she had her infant in the car with her. According to Stephen, his cousin had been spreading a rumor about him, a rumor that he claimed was untrue, and the rumor was that he had been masturbating in his front lawn. So this is apparently why he pulled a gun on her. He also said that the gun he was carrying was not loaded and that he was just trying to dissuade her from spreading defamatory stories about him in their community. And for this, he was convicted of endangering safety and a felony count of possession of a firearm, and he was later sentenced to six years in prison. But while he was awaiting trial for this charge, a much more serious incident found its way onto his record. So we're going to get into this charge and explain what happened over the years after it, and then we'll get back to Teresa. So bear with us because it's all relevant. On July 29th, 1985, so 20 years before Teresa's murder, a 36-year-old Manitowoc woman was beaten and raped in broad daylight while out for a jog along Lake Michigan one sunny afternoon. Now, based on the physical description that she gave and the criminal records of local offenders, police pulled nine photos of men that they believed had the potential to be involved. The victim, Penny Bernstein, identified Stephen Avery out of the lineup immediately, and Stephen was arrested the following day. Now, at the trial that happened in December, Stephen's legal team presented 16 people to corroborate his alibi, that he had been at the store with his family at the time of the attack. He claimed that he, accompanied by his wife and their five children, were buying paint at a store in Green Bay, Wisconsin at the time. Confirmed by the checkout clerk of the store and Stephen's receipt, he had paid for his items at 5.13 p.m. on the evening of July 29th, exactly one hour and 23 minutes after Penny claimed the attack took place. Penny estimated that the attack lasted about 15 minutes, which meant that Stephen would have only had an hour and eight minutes to leave Penny in the wooded area where the attack took place, drive home to retrieve his family, and then drive his family from their home to the store in Green Bay, over 40 miles or 64 kilometers away, so over 45 minutes away. The defense team said that this simply wasn't plausible, 
but the judge and jury sided with the prosecution. And on December 14, 1985, Stephen Avery was convicted of the assault of Penny Bernstein and sentenced to 32 years in prison. Now, Stephen and his legal team attempted to appeal the conviction in both 1987 and 1996, but his appeals were denied both times. But in 1995, a detective in a neighboring county contacted the Manitowoc County Jail where Stephen was being held and claimed that an inmate in his county had bragged about putting another man away for an assault that he himself had committed and that the description matched the case of Penny Bernstein's. According to the account of the man calling in the tip, the sheriff told him, quote, We already have the right guy. Don't concern yourself with it. But eight years later, in 2003, after serving 18 years in prison, new evidence presented itself. Testing was performed on the DNA from the attack on Penny, which wasn't available at the time of the crime. A shock to law enforcement, the samples taken from Penny and Stephen did not match. Instead, they identified someone who had not been tried, a man named Gregory Allen who, like Stephen, had possessed a prior criminal record. In both 1993 and 1995, so while Stephen was in prison years after the attack on Penny, Gregory committed violent sexual assaults while attacking his victim with a knife. Gregory Allen and Stephen Avery actually bore a striking resemblance, and Gregory had even committed a similar assault on the same beach two years prior to the attack on Penny. But somehow, although he was under police supervision at the time of Penny's assault due to his history of violence against women, Gregory had not been considered a suspect in her case and was not included in the photo lineup shown to Penny. Most of you are probably familiar with Stephen Avery as the focus of Netflix's Making a Murderer, which claims that he's innocent of the murder of Teresa Halbach. The docuseries premiered in 2015 and was viewed by almost 20 million households in its first month alone. Did you watch it at the time? I did, yeah. I watched it right when it came out. Yeah, me too. So the series was so popular that in 2018, Netflix released a second season. And on June 14th, 2023, they're set to release a third season. So get ready for that in eight months from when this episode is released. It was all a harrowing experience for Penny to say the least. In an interview with The Marshall Project, she said, quote, The day I learned of the exoneration was worse than the day that I was assaulted. I really fought back when my attacker grabbed me. I scratched him, I kicked him, and I did not go gently. After the DNA results came back, I just felt powerless. I can't unring this bell. I can't give Steve back the years that he's lost. In 2004, Stephen and Penny finally met face to face, and she remembers him being quiet and polite. They hugged and she apologized profusely for what had happened, though she was, of course, just trying to put the bad man who attacked her behind bars, not wrongfully identify an innocent man. She remembers him saying, quote, It's okay, Penny. It's over. On September 11, 2003, Stephen Avery was released from prison and cleared of all charges relating to Penny's assault. That day, he told reporters, quote, I don't blame the victim. What happened to her was horrible. It's the cops that set me up. But while DNA evidence may have cleared him of suspicion for the 1985 attack on Penny Bernstein, 
That doesn't necessarily mean that he was innocent of killing Teresa Halbach. So let's get back to Teresa. Let's first talk about the keys being found in Stephen's room for a moment. So they were found on the fourth day of searching the Avery property inside Stephen's room in his trailer. They were apparently on the floor under a slipper and next to a cabinet. But two very suspicious figures in this case, if you ask me, who many believe have both the motive and ability to frame Stephen, aka Lieutenant Lank and Sergeant Colborne, had already searched Stephen's room as well as the cabinet, and they didn't find this key. I remember that. I, I remember that it wasn't there prior when they first searched it, but then all of a sudden it was there on the second search. Yeah, it's, uh, no, I mean, they actually searched his trailer seven times, and this was the fourth day of the search. So they had been in there so many times, and it had not been in there before. Like, they searched this area, and they said it's not there. Actually, Deputy Daniel Kucharski said that Lieutenant Lank was the one who found it, like, pointing to the floor and saying, oh, there's a key there. And Deputy Daniel Kucharski even stated in court that the key was not there the first time he searched that room. Like, he is sure that it wasn't there before Lieutenant Lank pointed it out. So obviously that's very suspicious. Yeah, like he's basically insinuating that it was planted there. I want to explain the key too. Um, a lot of people, like internet sleuths, will look at this one photo of Teresa where she's holding her keys. It's really hard to see. I didn't even know that was her keys in her hand. But people point out that, oh, you can see that there's multiple keys on her key loop. But what was found in Stephen's room, we posted the photo, is just a single car key on... Like, you know those uh, lanyards that you put around your neck? Yeah. It And some of them unclip. So this was like, I don't know, maybe like two to three inches of lanyard with one of those like plastic black clips that should clip into the rest of the lanyard. The lanyard was found in her car, the rest of it, but there were no other keys attached to it. It was just the single car key. Very interesting. So many people are like, oh, was this her spare? And she has actual keys somewhere else. Uh, it's it's unclear, but, uh, you know, a lot of people then say, oh, did they have the key made and this wasn't actually her car key? Like, people go crazy with those theories, but all we know is what Deputy Daniel Kucharski is saying, that it was not there before when they searched it. So then, how did it get there if the Averys weren't allowed on the property? Was it planted or was this truly just an oversight? But strangely as well, the key did not contain any DNA of Teresa's the one the keys supposedly actually belonged to. Instead, it exclusively had Stephen Avery's DNA on it. In Teresa's car, there were a total of eight bloodstains found that matched that of Stephen Avery. It was pointed out much later that the styrofoam evidence box that contained a vial of Stephen's blood had been cut open, and there was a tiny prick at the top as if a needle had been plunged into it, pointing to Stephen's blood being planted in Teresa's car. But something that would help prove if it really was planted was to see if there was EDTA found in the blood from her car. EDTA is an anticoagulant that's added to all blood collection tubes to keep the blood in liquid form. Now, out of the eight samples of blood in Teresa's car that matched Stephen's, three of them were tested, and all tested negative for the presence of EDTA. So an FBI expert witness testified his belief that the blood did not come from the blood sample that they had of Stevens. And this blood sample was from Penny's case, so they had had it for quite a while. Yeah. 
However, the defense expert testified that the FBI doesn't know the limit of detection for their specific EDTA test, and without knowing this, you can't conclude whether or not it's actually there. So she testified that the stains could still have been planted. The amount of blood found in the cargo area of her car, so the trunk area, contained enough blood and hair of Teresa's for it to insinuate that she was transported in her own car after she was murdered. So, yeah, this is huge. I remember this from the show and how suspicious it was that there was that needle prick in his uh, tube of blood because they had said in the lab that that was not standard for them to take any blood from it at all. So it didn't make sense for it to be there otherwise, which is why so many of us believe that it was planted. But that's why this whole EDTA thing is a really important element. But it's hard because they did test for it and they didn't find it. But then there's that kind of, oh, well, was it actually there, though? Did you just not test it well enough like this other woman is saying? So it still feels very unclear. Yeah, it does. And then I want to go to what you're saying really quick about her being transported in her own car. I mean, after all this time, I still go back and forth between who I think murdered Teresa. And it's only fair to play devil's advocate for every case we cover. So with that said, I just wonder why Stephen would even put her body in her car and move it. Like, where would he need to move her body if much of her remains were found in the burn pits within a very short distance of his trailer? Like, to me, this connects more to the theory that maybe someone followed her, murdered her, and then put her in her own car, like a lot of people think. But if that's what happened, was that person Stephen? Possibly. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to tell because, like you're saying, yeah, why would he drive... Why would he drive her body over to the burn pit that's like, I don't know. Right there. Like a couple hundred feet or yards away, I guess. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. So let's talk about Teresa's phone records for that day as well as Stevens for that day. So as we mentioned, Teresa called Barb Janda at 11.43 a.m. saying that she was planning to arrive at 2 p.m. or even later. At 2.24 p.m., Stephen Avery called her from his phone and it went unanswered. So Stephen Avery called her at 2.24 p.m., called Teresa. Within that same minute, he called her back, but he used star 67 to hide his number. For those not in the U.S., I'm assuming this is only a U.S. thing, when calling somebody, you can actually dial star 67 followed by the phone number, and it will make the call show up as unknown. So it'll hide your phone number. Yeah, I remember doing that for prank calls as like a teenager. All the time. So Teresa did not answer the phone once again, but three minutes later, Teresa did take a call from AutoTrader that lasted almost five minutes. So she was on her phone. During this phone call with Dawn at Auto Trader, Teresa told her that she was on her way to Avery Salvage Yard. Then at 2.35 p.m., so three minutes after hanging up with Auto Trader, Stephen Avery called Teresa again using star 67, but immediately hung up, so it did not ring through on Teresa's end. Then two hours later at 4.35 p.m., Stephen called Teresa's cell phone once again, but not using star 67, meaning his number showed up and the duration of the call was 18 seconds and apparently it went straight to voicemail. He claims that he called her nearly two hours after she supposedly left to request that she send him a photo of a loader that she had snapped. 
So one thing I want to connect from earlier, remember, Heath, how you were telling us about how she was getting from October 1st to the 7th in particular, in particular, she seemed to be getting a lot of calls from somebody that she didn't want to talk to. And she, oh, not him again. Yeah. And Tom was kind of like, oh, is everything okay? And she was like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's just some weirdo. I, I know that she had an appointment there that day. So it makes sense for Steven to be calling her. Maybe he was doing star 67 thinking maybe she was ignoring his phone number for whatever reason. And he was just trying to get a more accurate time of her arrival. Like that could be an easy explanation, but also you can think of it as, well, he keeps calling her and she's not answering. So maybe that is who she was talking about to Tom. It could have been. And maybe she just, she knew that it was him. Yeah. So that's why she didn't answer any of his calls because she knew. And this is interesting because she arrived at Avery Salvage at 2.37 PM. So just two minutes after Steven had called her the second to last time. With the last time being at, what was it? 4... 4.35. 4.35. Yeah. So four minutes after she arrived, she received a call that went to voicemail which would make sense anyway, because she would be working. And like we said, it it didn't take her a great deal of time to take these photos. They were like anywhere between five to 15 minutes or so. But of course, Steven claims that she left his property and that he had nothing to do with her murder. And there is one eyewitness that could prove this, but the timing is very rough. So yeah, try try to pay attention. This is, all these timing things are confusing, but this this could be important. So a woman by the name of Mrs. Joellen Zipperer was out doing yard work when at 2.12 p.m. Teresa calls her and explains that she's having trouble finding her house. But Mrs. Zipperer wouldn't listen to this voicemail until after 9 p.m. that evening. So it's unclear to her how close that call came in regards to when Teresa actually arrived at her house. Because, like you said, that call came in at 2.12 but she got to the Avery's at like 2.37. So as you're about to describe, it's a very small window of time. Right. So Mrs. Zipperer claims that when Teresa did arrive, she spent about 15 minutes at the house and then she left. The interesting thing is that the Zipperers lived 15 minutes away or about 11 miles from Avery Salvage. So let's say that Teresa did arrive even seconds after leaving that voicemail at 2.12 p.m. and she was there for 15 minutes. That would put her leaving at about 2.27 p.m. Now we know that she arrived at Avery Salvage at 2.37 p.m. according to phone records, giving her just 10 minutes to get there when it's 15 minutes away. And that's only if she arrived right after leaving the voicemail that she couldn't find the zipperer's house. And if Mrs. Zipperer is being accurate about her being there 15 minutes. So many people believe that Teresa did leave Avery Salvage and actually went to the Zipperer's home after, meaning that she left there alive. But since Mrs. Zipperer doesn't know if Teresa arrived at 2 or 3 or 4 p.m. since she was outside all afternoon, it's incredibly hard to say. But it's absolutely possible if she only spent a few minutes at the Avery's photographing Barb's car and then she left alive. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. 
for award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year 
when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. rocketmoney.com slash going west. As we stated, Teresa's charred remains were found in a burn pit outside of Stephen Avery's trailer. But later, more remains of hers were found in a burn barrel outside of Barb Janda's trailer, again Stephen's sister. Although many, including one of Stephen Avery's attorneys, Kathleen Zellner, points out that it's not possible to burn a body in an open-air fire pit to such a degree in which they were found, leading people to believe that it was done elsewhere and the remains were planted. And as police suspected, testing on the burned human remains found at Avery Salvage confirmed that they belonged to Teresa. So there's the confirmation on that. Then, on November 11, 2005, so 11 days after Teresa went missing and was murdered, and two years after Stephen was released from prison for his wrongful conviction of Penny's assault, 43-year-old Stephen Avery was arrested for the kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder of 25-year-old Teresa Halbach, along with mutilation of a corpse and unlawful possession of a firearm. The investigation into Stephen Avery was complicated from the beginning. Because he was embroiled in a lawsuit with the Manitowoc County Police Department due to his wrongful conviction in 1985, the investigation for Teresa's murder had to be transferred to a neighboring police department, the Calumet County Sheriff's Office. The ongoing lawsuit sought $36 million in damages from the state of Wisconsin, but was settled for just $400,000 in February of 2006, after Stephen was already in prison for the murder of Teresa Halbach. Stephen maintained his innocence from the beginning and claimed that he was being framed. His lawyers, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, alleged that all the evidence had been tampered with or possibly even planted. But as they prepared to go to trial, the investigation became increasingly more complex. Investigators brought in other members of the Avery family for questioning, including Stephen's 16-year-old nephew, Brendan Dassey. According to reports critical of the Calumet County investigation, Brendan, who was also Stephen's alibi for the afternoon that Teresa went missing, was interrogated without legal counsel or a parent present. Now, Brendan's original story included that he and his uncle Stephen had a bonfire late that afternoon, which was usual for them. He claimed to not know anything about Teresa's disappearance or murder, but he did note that he would have been home during the few minutes that she was there taking photos. Brendan told police that he stopped by Stephen's trailer around 4 p.m. on the day Teresa went missing and that what he heard sounded like a woman screaming for help. He claimed that Stephen then opened the door to the trailer, revealing Teresa naked and tied to Stephen's bed. Brendan said that Stephen told him that he had been raping her and encouraged Brendan to do the same. He explained that he did before the two men shot and killed her while she screamed and begged them not to. On his confession tape, he can be heard saying, quote, We went in there, we tied her up, he stabbed her and he told me to cut her throat. 
They then burned her late that evening to dispose of her body. On March 2nd, 2006, 16-year-old Brendan Dassey was also arrested for his involvement in the murder of Teresa Halbach. He recanted his confession in his criminal trial, claiming that he had read what he admitted to in a book and that it didn't really happen. It was just fantasy. Not like his fantasy, but it was a fantasy story. Now, critics and many of you and us out there feel like this was a coerced confession and that it never would have happened had he had proper representation in the room with him because also... Brendan was reported to have an IQ of around 73, which is considered to be very low and would have likely been very influenced by coercion, but it was too late. And I just want to say, because we can't play the, the whole tape or anything, we just don't have enough time. It is in the documentary. It's also on YouTube. But in his interrogation video, it's just very disturbing to watch because although there are people who fully believe that his statement was true, he is clearly being spoon-fed the answers by investigators, in my opinion. In my opinion as well. Yeah, like they kept, he didn't, like he came out and said that quote that I read, but they were saying things like, be honest with us. You did blank, didn't you? And Brendan would say no or like pause. And then they would push him further and say things like, we know you did this. Just tell us that you did. Like, just be honest with us. You know, you can be honest with us. Like saying stuff like that until he said yes to whatever they said. So even um, they knew that she had been shot in the head and they kept saying to him like, oh, something with her head. Tell us what happened with her head. And he said things like, uh, like we cut her hair, like we did this to her head, like different things. Like he's almost trying to make up something that will make them happy. Yeah. He's trying to come up with a good answer for them. Yeah. And then ultimately one of the detectives goes, um, all right, I'm just going to come out and ask who shot her in the head. And then I think he says, Steven. And so it's like, they're literally, he's literally seemingly just trying to appease them because they're pushing him so hard. Like he wasn't like, this wasn't some big off the chest moment of like, okay, I'll tell you the whole story. It was like, they fed him the story and he just said yes after saying no first. Absolutely. And if you watch the documentary, I, I, I don't know how anybody could not see that there was coercion there. I, it's, it's, that's why I said it's such a heartbreaking video to watch. I actually watched it again the other day and it was just like, oh my God, this is just so sad because you know he has a lower IQ. You know he's very young and he's impressionable. Yeah, there is no one there to tell him that what they're doing is, is unethical, well, in my opinion. So um, before they arrest him, he asks them, or Brendan asks the detectives if they'll be done by a certain time because he had a class project due after 1 p.m. So he clearly doesn't understand the severity of what he's saying and that he wouldn't be going back to school ever again, but instead he'd be going to prison. And he's just worried about getting to class to submit his project. Yeah, he's like, is this going to be over soon? Yeah. Um, but he says it very nice. He remains calm the entire time. He doesn't get upset. And there are also so many back and forth conversations that he had with his mom, Barb, after where she's like begging for the answer to why would you say all that stuff if it wasn't true? To which at one point, Brendan actually says, I'm really stupid, mom. I can't help it. So it's just so, so heartbreaking. Especially considering, by the way, there was no evidence to back up anything that Brendan said. Teresa's DNA wasn't found on the restraints or handcuffs that Stephen had allegedly bought to try on his wife Jody when she got out of prison for a seven-month DUI stint, 
which she did shortly after Stephen was arrested himself. There was no blood found on the mattress, no blood found in the bedroom, no bullet holes in the house at all. But they essentially made Brendan either go against Stephen for a shorter sentence and pretend that what he said was true, which Brendan claims was not true, or take back his interrogation statement and spend life in prison at just 16 years old. There was one thing in Brendan's statement that did, in a way, connect. And this was regarding Stephen Avery's garage. You know, this was a point of interest for a while, even though no evidence was found in it. Then later, a faint stain was noticed. Brendan Dassey said that the stain appeared sometime on the night of October 31st, the night that Teresa was killed. And in so many words, he told investigators that he and Stephen had tried to clean it up. It was a four foot by three foot stain, so quite large, that was nearly invisible to the naked eye, but luminol helped to show it, giving it a very faint bluish glow. Oddly enough, when tested, this stain didn't even show the presence of blood, nor did anywhere else in the garage, but some experts say that it's possible for bleach to destroy blood, if cleaned thoroughly enough. The garage was searched and nothing else was found. And then in March of 2006, so a few months after Teresa's murder, Brendan confessed, I say confessed because it's hard to say, because he confessed this to investigator Tom Fassbender, who is the one that seemingly coerced Brendan's original confession. So he apparently confessed that Teresa was shot in Stephen's garage, not the bedroom like he had kind of stated before, or they had pushed him to state before. When they searched the garage later, they suddenly found a bullet fragment that they had not found before during their eight-day search. It was from Stephen's 22 caliber rifle, and although they couldn't conclusively say that Teresa's DNA was on it, the DNA profile on the bullet matched elements of Teresa's own DNA. And Teresa definitely could have been shot elsewhere or maybe somewhere outside because it's just weird that the houses didn't contain any bullet holes, like the garages and bedrooms didn't have any trace of blood spatter, which is incredibly hard to clean, especially small traces that aren't visible to the naked eye. But why would she be shot outside and nobody heard this? Like, it's, it's all just so suspicious to me, which is why the documentary was made. Too many questions, yeah. Yeah, and then I also think back to... Uh, Brendan, you know, saying that she was shot in the garage. And I, I just think back to the different clips that are shown in Making a Murderer. There's this one scene where he is being forced to say that he's sorry and admit to what he did. And this guy, oh, it is so horrible to watch. This guy's like, are you sorry? Because I can't help you if you're not sorry. And so Brendan eventually hits that he's sorry, like crosses off and then writes what happened. And he says his very original statement of, I was home, me and my uncle had a bonfire that night. I don't know what happened to Teresa kind of thing. Yeah, and I do then, remember that part. It yeah. was like it was like a, in a correctional facility, right? Yes, in like a classroom. But then this fucking investigator is like so unhappy that he wrote that. And he literally says, that's not true. Write what you said. Write that you murdered her. Write this. He's literally telling him to write something else. And then in another part in it, he says, draw Teresa chained up on the bed, draw her chained up, draw this, draw the bullet, draw this, like 
telling him what to draw. So he's drawing it because they're the only two people in the room. He doesn't know what else to do. This guy is being such an ass about it and making him write and draw certain things. So now you look those things up and you're like, oh, he confessed to this on paper. He drew this. No, the fuck he didn't. He made him draw and write that. Yeah, this isn't fucking kindergarten. Come on. This is why this case is so frustrating, particularly for me, for Brennan Dassey, because he was, in my opinion, very much forced to write and draw certain things that would appease the investigators. I absolutely believe that as well. So I'm getting so like fired up. Oh my God, this just is like- She's uh, getting pissed. <laughs> getting pissed. So in March of 2007, Stephen Avery was convicted of the first degree murder of Teresa Hallbach, along with unlawful possession of a firearm, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The following month in April of 2007, Brendan Dassey was also charged with murder and sentenced to life in prison. Although unlike his uncle, he will be eligible for parole. Now, we all know the story from there, as we explained earlier, you know, Stephen Avery and his new legal team, helmed by exoneration expert attorney Kathleen Zellner, have appealed his conviction multiple times, but he remains in prison for Teresa's murder. And although we could go into so much more detail on Stephen and Brendan, we could also have a whole multi-part series on alternate theories as well. So... Let's cut to the chase a bit and discuss some other thoughts since the identity of Teresa's killer is quite divided. First of all, we want to say that although some of Teresa's charred remains were found in Stephen's burn pile and Barb's burn pit, less than a mile away from the property at a gravel quarry, more charred human remains were found during a search with a cadaver dog. Alongside the bones was human flesh and blood. This did not test positive for Stevens, but instead an unknown male. Now, Stevens' attorney, Zellner, believes that testing the DNA of these bones could help prove that Steven didn't murder Teresa, but that someone else did and then burned her off property and planted her remains on his property. That is, if the remains even belonged to her, but it would be good to know. Yeah, especially because what are the chances that somebody else is killed in the vicinity? I I don't know. This is not not a large area. One mile away, somebody else is murdered. I mean, I guess it's possible. And burned. There's charred remains. Good point. So obviously, if we're talking about the male DNA, that could indicate her actual killer, not like the victim of the charred remains. But, you know, that's why it's important that these get tested. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that they are missing of Teresa in particular is her pelvic bone. And motions are still being filed to test these bones. But now, on to the alternate persons of interest. Not to police, but to the public. Teresa's brother, Mike Hallbach, quickly became the Hallbach family's unofficial spokesperson from from the beginning, just handling the press as soon as the day after Teresa was reported missing. Now, Mike told a reporter who asked how he was doing, he said this was when she, before her remains were found, when she was still missing. He said, quote, um... I mean, the grieving process, you know, could last days, could last weeks, could last years. You know, hopefully we find answers as soon as possible so we can, you know, begin to hopefully, you know, move on. Hopefully with Teresa still in our life. Even at the time, people found this strange because he seemed to be acting as if she was already gone, despite that last comment, hopefully with Teresa still in our life. But he kept saying, you know, he didn't really know 
where his words were, which happens, that's fine. You know, maybe he's grieving and he's just struggling to speak. Yeah, we talked about the fact in other episodes about how people just grieve in different ways. They really do. So when Making a Murderer aired and more clips of news reports and interviews were made public, critics began to rally against him, accusing him of being unaffected by the disappearance and death of his sister. Again, everybody grieves differently, so we're not claiming that. But one article released shortly after the first season of the show aired seethed, quote, In terms of fostering compassion for the dead, Hallbach family spokesperson Mike doesn't help things at all by creepily grinning when discussing his sister's murder trial and by blindly investing faith in the police, saying things like, we love the police, which, you know, that's fine. But I think mostly what they're talking about is he did smile a lot and that kind of turn people the wrong way. They were like, why are you, are, why do you look so happy? This is a really tragic situation. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a little bit weird, but yeah, there's but one, I don't know. there's one thing in particular about him that I'm going to bring up later when we talk about Ryan a little bit more, but you know, we're just mentioning all the things here. No offense. But then to continue that quote that I was saying earlier, uh, it says, did he need closure so much that he refused to see the defense's reasonable suggestion that his sister's actual murderer might still be somewhere on the loose? Or did he need to show solidarity with the police for some other reason? So it seems kind of far-fetched, but in this wild of an investigation, no one's really off limits. That's very true. Then there were Teresa's romantic partners, either real or perceived, because much of this is based on public speculation. As the most intimate and personal details of Teresa's life were being made public and fodder for gossip news columns, one suspect made his way to the spotlight for cheating on his wife with Teresa. Now, shortly before she disappeared, Teresa had told a friend of hers that she was seeing a man she referred to as DJ Bradley. Teresa explained that it had been purely physical and that she had broken it off because he had started acting, quote, weird. She told this friend that he had been calling her incessantly, which may explain who had been calling her at work, as observed by her photography colleague, Tom Pierce. On September 23, 2005, this man, later revealed to be a man named Ken, wrote Teresa in an email saying, quote, This email has a lot of exclamation points, by the way. So it says, Hey, I got your letter in your package today. Thank you so much. I already read the letter. Once again, I felt like I was there with you. And the package. Well, I think you take better care of me than my mother does. Well, I think that's a good thing. I wouldn't want my mom sending me porn. I really appreciate everything. And damn it, I really want to talk with you. I had a really good week last week and some funny stories. But I'll put that into a letter on Sunday. I really miss you. And I really thank you for sending me messages to my beeper. I almost feel like I was at the games with you. Oh, and congrats on your last few wins. I should be back online on Monday. Hopefully we can talk. I miss you and thank you very much for the goodies. I'll let you know the results. Bye, Ken. Teresa occasionally shot boudoir photo shoots, so that may explain, you know, the claim that he's receiving porn from her, but outside of that, we have no explanation. So maybe those calls were from this guy, Ken, or they were from Steven, like I had mentioned earlier, but who knows? I mean, it, he seems very excited to be receiving something for from Teresa so I gotta I, say though it would it would make 
Police can get her phone records from the 1st to the 7th to see if she is getting a call. And I wonder if they can access Stephen's phone records from that time. Surely they can to see if he was the one calling her throughout those days. So this could easily be figured out by just looking at phone records. But these dates are not made public. So that's why we don't know. The only ones made public are the 31st and the 1st. So the man, whose real name is actually Joshua Kenneth Sasse, I don't know if it's, do you think it's Sass? Sasse? I, I think it's Sasse, yeah. <laughs> Gotta go with Sasse. S-A-S-S-E, Sasse. <laughs> so it's not Ken or DJ. His name is Joshua Kenneth, but it makes sense that he would go by Ken. So he was married to a woman named Brenda, and they lived on Cuss Road in rural Manitowoc County directly behind Avery's auto salvage, which to me is heavily suspicious. Oh my God, yeah. It couldn't be more suspicious. No, it could not be. So on November 5th, 2005, six days after Teresa had last been seen, another resident of Cuss Road called in a tip to police that a woman who looked like Teresa had knocked on his door late on the evening prior, looking for a home in the area. So this would mean that she was alive until the 4th, which feels very iffy to me. Where was she the rest of that time? Yeah. So the home that the tipper claimed that Teresa was looking for was 4130 Cuss Road, or the home of Brenda and Joshua, or Ken. And coincidentally, or maybe not, one of the investigators working Teresa's case also lived nearby and just happened to be related to Joshua. Police did announce at the time that they spoke with Joshua, although his identity was concealed at the time, and they did not believe him to be involved. Later, Brenda and Joshua did wind up divorcing, and she claimed that he had been physically violent towards her. This could point to many different possibilities. Did Brenda kill Teresa out of anger regarding the alleged affair? And use her husband's connection to an investigator to cover it up and frame their neighbor? Was Joshua angry that Teresa had cut things off? On September 5th, 2005, so less than two months before her disappearance and murder, Teresa wrote in her journal, quote, I'm wondering if I found my soulmate last night. Wesley Bunnell was there. I don't know. Something just clicked inside of me. I've never felt so calm and so excited at the same time. That's how I still feel today. But aside from this diary entry, we found no indications as to who Wesley Bunnell was or whether or not he has been investigated for possible involvement in Teresa's murder. So, you know, definitely I think the Ken angle is really good that he knows an investigator because a lot of people are obviously wondering if he killed her and used the investigator to help him frame the Averys. It's definitely possible. Definitely possible. So Ryan Hillegas, uh, Teresa's ex-boyfriend and the champion of the search efforts for her, was never officially considered a suspect. But internet sleuths are convinced that more than anyone else, except for maybe Steven and Brendan themselves, it's likely that Ryan had something to do with Teresa's disappearance and death. Many believe that he was flagrantly lying when he was giving his testimony in court, citing his behavior as shifty and rehearsed. He also seemed to forget certain details, such as whether or not he was questioned with or without Scott, Teresa's roommate, or when he last saw Teresa. He claimed that he stopped by her house the day before Teresa disappeared to drop something off for Scott, but he didn't say what it was and he couldn't remember when he had been there. 
Because he wasn't considered a suspect, he was never subjected to a police interview or a polygraph test, or even asked to provide an alibi. Teresa's family and friends claimed that they started to worry that something had happened to her when her cell phone's voicemail inbox was full. Now at trial, Ryan admitted to having the password to get into the mailbox in order to print off records for her family. He claimed that he hadn't been given the password, but that he had guessed it. However, her voicemail inbox did not appear to be full after all, leading many to believe that Ryan had deleted incriminating messages that could have led to him becoming a suspect in her murder. Now, according to Steven's attorney, Kathleen Zellner, Ryan told police that Teresa's front driver's side headlight had been damaged and that Teresa had made a claim with her insurance and received a payout, but had yet to fix the light. After verifying this with Teresa's insurance, Steven's legal team found that, in fact, she had not made a claim about the light prior to her death, but her headlight was, in fact, broken. Kathleen believes that the light was not damaged until after Teresa's death, meaning that Ryan must have had something to do with it, as he had connected himself to the damaged light without having any way of knowing that it had been damaged in the first place. It's also rumored that Ryan is in possession of Teresa's planner, which was believed to have been in Teresa's car at the time of her death, although this has never been substantiated. I think these are pretty suspicious points to bring up. I, I don't really know what it would mean about the headlight, like if it had gotten broken, if he had murdered her and it had somehow gotten broken, like if he had, I don't know, run her off the road or something, but then why would you mention it? Like, th how is this even relevant to anything that her headlight was broken? Yeah, I, I don't really know. I think this may be a little bit of a reach, but... It is interesting that he... But it could just be a misunderstanding. Maybe he knew it was broken and said, oh, she called the insurance and she actually didn't. I mean, they weren't dating. They stopped dating four years earlier. So maybe she told him that she did and she didn't. Like, this could mean nothing, but it is just kind of a weird detail. Yeah, and I, I think it would be really strange that like four years would pass and then he would still be seemingly so obsessed with Teresa or so True. upset about the breakup that he would murder her. I mean, it's possible that maybe he had hoped all this time they could get back together and maybe he had recently made a move trying to and she rejected him. I mean, who knows? But that's the thing. It's like we don't know the nature of their yes. prior relationship or the ins and outs. Was there any like physical abuse? Did they fight at all? Like we just don't know any of that. Very true. There is one thing that I want to bring up that to me is the most suspicious thing. It's an interview after Teresa's car was found and it's with Mike Halbach, Teresa's brother and her ex-boyfriend Ryan Hilligas, who we're talking about right now. And we're going to post the video on our socials too because to me their body language language and the fact that Mike and Ryan like keep looking at each other is so sketchy but I'm just gonna play the clip for you because you can still hear their uh, this just a heavy uncertainty for both of them and to differentiate their voices since you can't look at them just note that Ryan is the first person to answer the question and his voice is louder than Mike's did they find anything while you were out searching I'm not really going to comment on that, but if anything was found, you know, we had proper authority and professionals take a look at it as they needed. How many times were you on the site tonight? You were there Saturday when they found the car, but how many other times were you on the site? Um, I, You're never I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't on the site. That's, okay. that's not true at all. Did you get there, Mike? Were you, were you part of the, on the site search? We have, no, the people, I mean, the original, when we originally found the vehicle, 
was a member of our search party. It was a member of our, our who search asked party. For permission to go onto the site. Um, but no, no one other than that has ever been on, on the Avery On the actual site, it, it's been crime scene and yeah. taped off, secured. Yeah, just so weird. I mean, again, looking at their body language makes it so much more sketchy because they keep looking at each other for answers and almost approval for what they're saying. And, you know, when when um, Ryan is asked if he was ever on the property, Mike is the one to kind of be like, no, you, you, you were never on the property. And it's like, okay, let him answer. Yeah, I do think it's a little bit strange, but also it could just be that they're very terrible at interviews. Yeah, I mean, they could just be really awkward. Nervous or something. Super nervous that they're on TV and just the nature of what they're discussing. Maybe they're worried about saying something that is not supposed to be public information, but it's just still, it's hard not to, like I think that YouTube video where we got the clip it's in the documentary it's titled ryan hallbach and or sorry mike hallbach and ryan hilgis sketchy interview so it's kind of like everybody thinks this is weird yeah definitely and it's funny because mike hallbach is the spokesperson for his sister's case yeah. so so you would think that he would be you know quite comfortable with doing interviews and stuff but it, it does appear to be very strange i think especially because of the whole framing aspect you're claiming that you were never on the property and it's mike had to kind of intervene and say he was never on the property and that you know if they are behind it they would have had to have been on the property to plant the evidence so i think that's why people think it's weird because why are you being so bizarre answering these questions yeah i, I don't again, know this who knows this case is so that's why this case is so interesting because there's so many players involved but i mean really it's hard not to go back to the source of everything which is stephen avery's Absolutely. property and, and his family. So Right. And we're not even trying to point fingers in too many other directions. It's just this is all a part of the story because of that heavy belief that he's being framed. It is important to talk about other aspects. But obviously, he has been charged for this. So under the law, he is responsible. Yes. So earlier, we mentioned Pamela Sturm, who is the woman that located Teresa's car on the Avery property. Now, she was granted permission to search the property by Earl Avery, who is Stephen's younger brother. Well, the day that Pamela found the RAV4, which is Teresa's car, while she and her daughter Nicole were awaiting the police, Pamela noticed a man up on the ridge of the property. He was just standing there, apparently, and it creeped Pamela out so much that it led her to hide her daughter behind a car so this man wouldn't see her. And when she was later asked if this man was Stephen Avery, she said, I don't know for sure. It was too far to see. But according to Earl Avery, again, the younger brother of Stephen, a man named Andre Martinez was at Avery Salvage multiple times a month to get parts, and he was even there on November 5th the day Teresa's car was found. So he definitely could have been the man that was up on the ridge near where Teresa's car was found. So, I mean, if he had access to this area, could he have been the one to plant her car there? And could he have been at Avery Salvage on October 31st when Teresa was there and maybe he murdered her? Well, later on the day of November 5th, again, so he left Avery Salvage and then went home. And when he went home... 42-year-old Andre Martinez attempted to murder his wife, his child, and his dog with an axe. He was arrested two days later, and weirdly enough, during his questioning, 
Andre stated that if the Averys were responsible for killing Teresa Halbach, he would take the blame for it because he knew he was going to prison for life anyway. So was this his way of confessing? Like in a very odd way? Yeah, and he admitted to suffering from blackouts, claiming to have even suffered from one when he attempted to murder his family. He also reportedly told Barb Janda, Stephen's sister, that he knows Stephen is innocent. And he is currently serving 30 to 60 years in prison and is in his sixth year. So many people online have said, well, if he did it, he has nothing to lose. He's already in prison, but he's not in prison for life. So he could get out early because it was attempted murder. So maybe if he did commit Teresa's murder, he's not saying it because he doesn't want to spend life in prison. Yeah, but it's also, that's also not how justice works. Like just because you were accused of one crime doesn't mean that you shouldn't be accused and prosecuted for another crime that you committed. Oh, no, of course. I mean, this, I don't even know if police question him for Teresa's disappearance or murder at all. This is just people on the internet putting two and two together. Sure. And this so, is also, you know, pure speculation. Not pure saying speculation. not saying that he had anything to do with it, but I'm just saying that that kind of thought process doesn't work with the justice system. Right, of course. But I think just because later that day he tried to take an axe to his family, people say, oh, well, this guy was on the property, so... What are the chances that in this small area, there's another murderous man? I mean, maybe there is, but maybe maybe it, he's not involved at all, but worth mentioning. So one of the wilder theories making the rounds on internet forums is the claim that Ryan Hillegas, her ex-boyfriend, Scott Boldorn, her roommate, and Ken Kratz, the prosecutor in Stephen's first trial, were embroiled in drug sales or smuggling together. Ryan, at the time an unemployed nurse, was frequently stopping by Scott and Teresa's home and making deliveries to Scott, who worked as a construction worker, visits which went unexplained. Ken had a history of struggling with addiction to opioids, and his career suffered because of it. So while this sounds pretty outlandish, some connect those dots. After winning the trial against both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey in 2007, Ken Kratz continued to prosecute high-profile cases in the state of Wisconsin, thrilled to have gotten justice that he sought for Teresa Halbach. But two years later, he became ensconced in his own legal troubles, leading some to believe that there was ulterior motives for his proximity to the case. In 2009, Ken was working the domestic violence proceedings of a young woman pressing charges against her ex-boyfriend. Now, according to this woman, while acting as her attorney in her abuse case, he sent her dozens of sexually explicit text messages, including, quote, Are you the kind of girl that likes secret contact with an older married elected DA? The riskier, the better. Ew, he's such a creep. Ugh. And so many people who watch Making a Murderer hate him. He just has the creepiest voice and he's so conniving. I just couldn't stand this guy. But he, that's, you know, also... And that's horribly inappropriate. Yeah, like this is a conflict of interest because you're trying to get involved with a person that you're representing. So creepy. So multiple other women came forward after this account, and Ken was accused of taking advantage of vulnerable women coming out of abusive relationships who had trusted Ken to work on their behalf. One client said that he had slid his hand up her skirt while she was in his office for a domestic abuse lawsuit against her husband. Ugh. And another said that Ken had blackmailed her into performing sex acts on him. I hate you, Ken. Such a terrible person. Now, Ken addressed these allegations in an interview with Megan Kelly. Megan asked, quote, 
You were suspended and ran into some legal trouble of your own for unethical behavior with female jurors. Some have said that that's a good reason for us to not listen to anything you have to say. To those critics who say that, you say what? Ken's response was, All of this, a problem which occurred because of, or at least partly because of a prescription drug dependence, happened in 2010. That's three years after the making of the documentary. Nothing about that really deplorable behavior occurred during the Stephen Avery case, before the Stephen Avery case. Nothing at all is at least truthfully or honestly attached to that. In 2016, the year after the documentary was released on Netflix, an assistant district attorney in Wisconsin named Michael Griesbach released a book called Indefensible, The Missing Truth About Stephen Avery, Teresa Halbach, and Making a Murderer. In it, Stephen's former fiance Jody claimed that she believed he was absolutely capable of what he was accused of. Jody detailed the time they spent together as a couple and that Stephen was allegedly obsessed with BDSM, doesn't mean he's a murderer of course, but he had once strangled her unconscious during sex, which was not warranted. There's also something that we were going to mention earlier about how after he was um, imprisoned for uh, what happened with Penny, the attack on Penny that he was eventually exonerated for, she split up with him even though they had kids together and he would kind of write her letters so angry that she wouldn't bring the kids to see him and kind of like threatened to kill her and said like ha ha after it oh god yeah but a lot of people were like why would you say that like that's so creepy and aggressive i just we didn't mention it because there's so many other things to get to but that also is included in what happened with him and jody so jody thinks that he is capable of this Jody also remembers once ingesting rat poison just so that she would be hospitalized and could get away from him. Wow, that's intense. I know. So in interviews aired on the news and in the documentary, Jody said that she believed that he was innocent, but later revealed that he had threatened her if she didn't behave as he demanded she did. In the 18 months that Jody lived in the trailer on the Avery property with Stephen, she claims that he beat her multiple times and also wanted to film himself assaulting her, which is so disgusting. And Jody still feels guilty for not being around the day of Teresa's murder, claiming that she wishes that she could have saved her. Uh, and Jody remembered, quote, He's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a nice person, a semi-nice person, and then behind closed doors, he's a monster. He told me once, all bitches owe him because of the one that sent him to prison the first time. We all owed him, and he could do whatever he wanted. As of right now, 60-year-old Stephen Avery and 33-year-old Brendan Dassey remain behind bars. An appeal filed in April of last year cited that a delivery man, Thomas Sawinski, saw two men not fitting the description of Stephen or Brendan in one account, the men were described as potentially Bobby Dassey, Brendan's brother, and an older man putting Teresa's car down Avery Road. Ultimately, that appeal was denied, but in August of 2022, Stephen Avery's legal team again appealed his conviction, citing new evidence. The new season of Making a Murderer will premiere next year. Thank you 
so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. One thing I want to point out is that even though we were obviously talking about throughout this episode that Steven potentially isn't involved, it does not mean that he's not a piece of shit because he murdered a cat. He is claimed to have abused women and say all this horrible stuff. And he is just this kind of been a lifelong criminal in general. So all of that is not to say that he's a good guy. I just want to say that. Absolutely. And I mean, who knows? Maybe he is behind Teresa Hallbach's murder. Absolutely. Right. I mean, he was convicted of it. So um, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens in season three, honestly. Yeah. I'm actually really looking forward to that. And yeah, I'd love to know what all of you guys think, because I think we've all kind of had opinions stirring for years. So um, comment on our socials and let us know what you think. Halloween is coming up in a few days. If you're listening, when this episode comes out, Heath and I are having a party. We're so excited to do that. And um, it's going to be a good weekend. So hope you guys have fun and are very safe. Yes, please stay safe this Halloween. And we'll see you guys next week. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.